For those of you that I uh, have not had the opportunity to meet, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here at SCC. Uh, if you are new with us, if you're visiting this morning, I just want to say thank you for coming. Um, I'm glad that you would choose to come and spend your morning with us. Uh, and for those of you that call SCC home, welcome home. Right? It's good to, to be with you this morning. Now, as I uh, prepared for this morning, as I uh, looked back at the series that we've been in, uh, we've been going through the book of Galatians, just verse by verse, making our way through this letter that was written by Paul to the church uh, in Galatia. And, uh, and as I sat and just kind of thought through, like, what's he been saying? What has already been said, right? His message has kind of been on repeat, hasn't it? It's just over and over and over again. It's the same thing over and over again. And, and what's been interesting to me is, is the tone that Paul has had with this church, right? He's actually been pretty aggressive. Uh, if you read his words, uh, he has gone so far to say, uh, you guys are being fools. Like, you guys are worshiping demons and not Jesus. Now, if somebody came to me and said those same types of words, I would probably be taken aback a little bit, Right? Paul even addresses this and he's like, man, I want to change my tone with you, but I can't. You guys have perplexed me. Like you got me scratching my head. Like, what are you doing? And so for four chapters, Paul has just been hammering uh, on the idiocy of exchanging the gospel for the law. And the reason, uh, in, in the very heart of this letter, at the heart of Paul and his ministry and in, in the message that he has is this, it's, it's, it's of justification, right? This is a churchy word. It's also a legal word, right? To be justified, to be found innocent, to be found not guilty. And so why Paul cares so much about this, he writes about this in, in Romans. In Romans 14, verse 12, he says, all of us are going to give an account before God someday. So he's saying, if you guys are going to give an account before God, if all of us have to give an account before God, the account that you need to give needs to be one of Jesus and not yourself. And so you've heard the gospel, you've heard the good news, you've accepted it, you've said, yes, I believe in Jesus, and then you've reverted back to this old way of saying, but it's up to me to save myself. And Paul's saying, come on, guys, come on. There's something so much better than this. And so in justification, in this churchy word, imagine we've all seen enough legal dramas. Uh, imagine being in a courtroom, right? And you're sitting there and you see the defendant and they are on trial and they stand before the judge and they give an account. And the judge hears what they have to say and then he bangs the gavel and gives a decree, right? Guilty or innocent, the reason that we talk so much about Jesus here at SCC, the reason that he is such a big deal is because when you say yes to Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, this beautiful exchange takes place. It's one where me and my brokenness and my sin and my guilt and my shame, where I turn to him and I say, yeah, I, I believe that what you did was for me. And all of that guilt and that shame and that nastiness is taken from me and it is placed on him and nailed to the cross. And at the same time that that is happening, all of Jesus' blamelessness, his innocence, his perfectness, his rightness, his righteousness is taken from him and it is placed on me. 
And so the day where you give an account before God and you stand in front of him and you say, this is my account. If you have said yes to Jesus, what it means is that instead of seeing you, instead of seeing all that you have done, instead of seeing your account, he sees the perfect, blameless, spotless righteousness of Jesus. That is why Paul cares so much. That is why he has had the tone that he has had. That is why this matters so much to him. In all of his letters, he's constantly filling it with this message. In Colossians 2.14, he says, him, uh, Jesus, right, canceled the accusation that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. This is beautiful. This is good news. To be justified is for the judge to call you not guilty. And so Paul is blown away that there are people that don't believe that the gospel is enough. He's blown away that they're saying Jesus plus the works, the law, anything else. He's saying, no, 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 no. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is perfect. So we're going to dig into the words that Jeff just read. So if you brought a Bible, open up. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 21, make our way through uh, into the beginning of chapter 5. If you've got your phone or your tablet, we love the YouVersion app. We've actually got an outline in there that will kind of follow along with us this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Paul says, tell me. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He's saying there's a difference between observing the law and living under the law, right? To observe the law, that's not bad. It's actually kind of wise, right? It's good to not murder. It's good to not steal. It's good to not pursue what your neighbor owns. It's good to keep the Sabbath, right? These are wise things. These are good things. It's not bad to obey that. But if you live under it, that means you're trying to find your salvation through following that. You see, and for those of you that are living under that, right? Imagine somebody just carrying a ton of weight on their shoulders. He's saying, for those of you living under that, have you not read it? It tells you that it can't give you salvation. It cannot offer salvation. The law, the very thing that you are looking at, that you are pursuing, it cannot support the salvific weight that you are trying to get from it. He's saying, have you not read the law? It tells you this. And so like I said, Paul has kind of been a little harsh in his verbiage and and he starts to change his strategy. And he starts coming from a different angle and he's saying, guys, there is something far more lovely worth pursuing. Now, how many of you have ever uh, made a family tree? Cool, five of us. Um, it was like mandatory. Cool. I don't know about you guys. And I'm sitting at my kitchen table and I am pumped, right? Because not only do I have like homework, which I wasn't excited about, but I got to make something for homework, right? So that was pretty cool. So uh, I draw out my tree and I'm cutting that out of green construction paper and I got blue construction paper because you got to have a blue sky behind your green tree, right? And you get the glue stick out and you get glue everywhere but on the paper and so your hands are all sticky and you slap it down. You're like, well, a tree's not good if it doesn't make apples. And so out comes the marker and I'm glad I grew out of that one. Uh, And so uh, I am drawing apples all over this tree and I get done and I look at it 
Check out that masterpiece, right? I'm pretty pumped, and uh, I'm sure my mom and dad are in the kitchen, and they're like, hey, honey, look, he made a head of broccoli that's dying with chicken pox. And um, so out come the lines, and right, here's me, and here's my mom, and here's my dad, and here's grandma and grandpa on this side, and grandma and grandpa on that side. And now we've gotten so advanced, we've gotten to Ancestry.com and 23andMe. How many of you guys have spit in a tube and shipped it to strangers? Okay, my wife's not the only one. Um, <laughs> it's crazy, right? It's like equal parts cool and creepy. Like, spin a tube, send it to strangers, pay them a hundred bucks, they'll tell you who you are. Kind of weird, right? But for some people, they don't know what their ancestry looks like. They have no idea what it looks like, you know, eight generations back. And then on the opposite side of that, you've got the Farnsley family. <laughs> I love that you all started laughing, right? Uh, they've been a part of our church for like 20 years, right? They've been here for a while, but they've been living in Shelby County since like the Garden of Eden, right? <laughs> so you read in Genesis and it's Adam and Eve in the garden and you've got the Farnsleys in Shelby County, right? Just side by side. They've been here forever. Uh, and over the last couple of weeks, I've been spending a lot of time with them. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with Mike and with his dad, Mark. And uh, we've been cutting down trees and we've been working on barns and we've been working on some smokehouses on their property. And, and the entire time they're telling me the history, you know, well, this building was built back in 1830, da, da, da. And, you know, where that road is right now, that used to actually be wetlands and that was a lake and they would go fishing and it was all wooded in here. And then Mike said something, it just blew my mind. He's like, oh yeah, my kids are like the eighth generation to live in this house. I'm like, dude. I'm 34 and I've lived in five places in like three states. You go back three generations on my dad's side and we're back in Sweden, like eating lingonberry and lutefisk and shopping at Ikea, right? <laughs> Eight generations in that house? That's insane. And so I started digging into things and I'm talking to my dad on Friday and he's like, oh yeah, Grandpa Olson was a lumberjack in Sweden. I'm like, are you kidding me? It makes so much sense, <laughs> right? <laughs> you see, ancestry, it's cool to know, right? It's awesome to know where you come from. For some people, it's just stories, right? I love the fact that my great-grandfather was a lumberjack. That's legit. Some people are into ancestry for health reasons, right? Like you go to the doctor and, hey, what's your family history of this? Yeah, well, year after year after year after year, you know, family has this illness or they've dealt with this disease, right? For some folks, it's good to know that stuff. For some people, their ancestry, it's all about inheritance. Well, my great uncle Wilbur was a millionaire and so when he dies, I'm gonna be a millionaire. And other people, it's just stories, right? They just, they like knowing where they come from. And so what Paul is about to do is he's about to dig into the ancestry of these people. And he's not just doing it to give them a cool story, but he's pointing them to something that they would have been very, very familiar with uh, in a story that they actually take a ton of pride in. So uh, I do not know if everybody here knows the story of Abraham, so I'm going to quickly, quickly, I'm going to, it's Swedish, I'm going to quickly, <laughs> I'm going to quickly blow through this story, all right? You can find this in Genesis chapter 12. Um, God comes to a man named Abraham and he says, I am going to make you into a great nation. You are gonna have crazy offspring. You're gonna have more kids than there are stars in the sky than there is sand at the beach. That's impressive, right? And Abraham's like, um, that sounds kind of cool, but 
I am really, really old, and my wife is really, really, really old, and she's been barren her entire life. So you're telling me that we're going to have that many descendants when we don't have one, and we're both past the point of even having a kid. But it says that Abraham believed God, and God counted that as faith in him. He counted that as righteousness. And so Abraham went to his wife, Sarah, and he said, hey, Sarah, guess what? God came to me, and he said that we were going to have this great, great big family. And it said that Sarah laughed. And it's not because it was just like this funny story. This was kind of a sticking point for her. Because for her entire life, all she's wanted to do is to be a mom. She's wanted kids so desperately, and she hasn't been able to. But it says she heard what Abraham had to say, and she kind of believed it. And, and God came and visited her and said, hey, Sarah, you are going to give birth to a son. And then that son's going to give birth to a son. Who's going to give birth to sons? Who's going to give birth to this great nation? And out of that line, out of your line is going to come a savior. A savior that's going to save people from sin and from rebellion and from everything that they've experienced. And it said that Sarah believed what God said. So several years go by and Sarah gets a little antsy. And she's like, you know what? God said we were going to have a son. It's not happening. And so she does something that to us seems kind of weird, but uh, she has a maidservant. She has a slave by the name of Hagar, and she actually offers Hagar to Abraham. Says, Abraham, you should marry Hagar, and you should have kids with her. That way you have descendants. So this wasn't uncommon, uh, wasn't wise, but she does, and Abraham foolishly says, okay. And so he takes Hagar, and she gets pregnant. And she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And it says that Abraham was 86 years old. And several years go by, 13 to be exact. And God comes back to Abraham and says, hey, you remember that promise that I said I was going to keep with you? Yeah, next year your wife is going to give birth to a son. And Abraham's like, um, I'm going to be 100 and my wife is going to be 90. And God says, uh-huh. And a year later, Sarah gives birth to a baby boy, and his name was Isaac. Now, Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael and Abraham in the middle, I mean, it was an episode of Maury, right? It got pretty heated. It got a little awkward, right? This is why it wasn't exactly wise for Abraham to do this. But Scripture goes on to tell us that Isaac had a son who had sons who became the people of Israel, which is why the Jewish people see themselves as a people of promise. They came from the promise of Isaac. And scripture tells us that Ishmael went a different way and he is the son, or he is the father of the Arabs, right? So you have Isaac who is kind of uh, in the Jewish camp and you've got Ishmael who is everyone else. And so in the book of Galatians, what we've been seeing over and over and over again is that there is a group of Jewish Christians who are saying if Gentiles want to become Christians, they have to basically become Jews in order to be saved. They have to obey the law. They have to be circumcised. They have to go through all of the practice. If the descendants of Ishmael want to be like us, they have to do all of these things. So we're going to jump into how Paul uses this. 
In verse 22, he says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise, right? Now, Paul is going back. He's going way back, right, to Genesis. It's a story that these people would have been very, very familiar with. They look at Abraham and they say, he is our father, right? This was a big deal. To them, lineage was huge. They were a people of promise. The Jews come from the line of Isaac. So you've got the Jews and then you've got the Gentiles, which are everyone else. And what Paul does here is absolutely brilliant, right? Uh, His message throughout Galatians is this, right? You can't, but God can Like when you boil it down, that's what it comes down to. You can't save yourself, but God can. You can't, but God can. He's saying, you know what? A slave woman that has a baby when she's younger and able to have kids is nothing spectacular. But a 90-year-old having a son after a lifetime of being barren? Only I can do that. Verse 24 says, now this may be interpreted allegorically, okay? Now, this is important, right? Uh, Most of the time in the Old Testament, a lot of people read stories, and instead of reading them and saying, I believe that that actually happened, what they've done is they've turned most of the Old Testament into allegory. For example, right, Jonah. Um, There is no way that Jonah was swallowed by that big of a fish. Like, not possible, right? And he wasn't in the belly. All that stuff didn't take place. When in reality, Jonah was a real person who was called to go to Nineveh, disobeyed God, jumped on a ship, went the complete opposite direction. God stirred the seas. They threw Jonah overboard in which God sent a fish to swallow him. Yes, that actually happened. It's not just a cute story to tell you that at some point your life is going to swallow you up. But that's what we've done to the Old Testament, right? David and Goliath, who's your giant? What's your giant that needs to be slain, right? David didn't take down a massive guy with a tiny stone. No, this is a story to make you feel better about the challenges that you're facing. But what happens when we take these stories and we just make them into these cute little nursery rhymes and we take them to mean other things is we are robbing God of his wonder and of his miraculous power. And when you find yourself in a messy situation and you've robbed God of the miraculous and you've robbed him of the ability to intervene in ways that only God can, you have made him very small and you have lost any ability to have hope. So it's important that Paul says, let's interpret this as allegory, right? It'll tell you in scripture if the story is meant to be taken allegorically, right? Jesus taught in parables all the time and we knew that. He says, now let us, uh, now this may be interpreted allegorically, right? These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, uh, what happened at Mount Sinai? The Jews got the law. 
Now, why does this matter in what he is saying, right? He is saying that Hagar is Mount Sinai and that she corresponds with the present Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, big deal to the Jews, right? Holy land, like everything good. This is the land that God promised us, right? Jerusalem is a big deal to the Jews. And Paul just said, yeah, um, that's basically slavery. Hagar's your mom. Now, to us, that's not a big deal. But if Hagar is the mother of the Gentiles, whereas Sarah is the mother to the Jews, Paul kind of just slapped him in the face. He said, do you even know who your mom is? The entire book is about making new believers if Jesus obey the law, right? Jesus plus nothing equals justification. That is what these people have been preaching They are instilling a life of slavery into the lives of these new Christians. So he continues. Verse 26, he says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And then he starts quoting out of Isaiah. He says, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This is some language pretty similar to the story of Abraham and Sarah, right? And he's quoting out of Isaiah when uh, the Israelite people have been pushed out of Jerusalem. It has been sacked. They are in exile. They are completely removed from Jerusalem. Any hope that Jerusalem will be this great place again, that they will be a great nation, has basically been robbed and crushed and destroyed. These people are weak, they are wounded, they are tore up, they are nowhere near their home. Any hope that they have is completely lost. There is a faint, not even a faint hope that they will be established as a nation again. And Isaiah writes these words to remind them. No, 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 no. It is when there is no ability to bring forth life that God will flex his muscle. It is when you are weak that he is strong. It is when to you there is no way that God makes a way. It is when you've been barren your entire life and God comes to you and says, I'm going to give you a baby at 90. You can't, but God can. See the trend? Verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Right? Allegory in this story, right? Children of promise are those that put their faith in Jesus. Children of the flesh are those that are enslaved by the law. Right? If we are children of the promise, what we read about in the scriptures is that we have been adopted as God's sons and daughters. And this is a beautiful reality, right? If you are enslaved under the law, you are in the line of Hagar. You have chosen to put yourself under the law. And what I mean by that is you base your understanding of God's justification on who you are and what you have done instead of on Jesus and what he has done. 
When you put yourself under the law, you become a slave to modifying behavior, which completely robs you from the ability to pursue an intimate relationship with God. If instead of going to him and saying, God, man, I just wanna spend time with you and I wanna pursue you and I wanna rest in you and I wanna find my joy in you. The entire time you're saying, I've gotta be better. I've gotta make myself better. I can't do this, but I can do that. I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that. I need to learn from that mistake. I can never do that again. Are you a child of promise or a child of flesh? I think if I were to sit down with most people uh, in this room and I were to have a conversation with you and I was to ask you, what does it mean to uh, be a Christian or to be a believer in Christ? I think most people would say, yeah, I believe that I'm a sinner. Not all of you would, but I think most of you probably would. I'm a sinner. And I believe that, that Jesus came and that Jesus died on a cross and that he was buried and that he rose again. And because of that, God, the just judge, can bang the gavel and call me innocent. And you're not wrong in that understanding. But what Paul is moving to, what he is getting to, is absolutely beautiful. He's saying, you're more than just an innocent person in a judge's courtroom. You've been adopted into his family. He's your dad. He's your dad. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. This is something that I've been wrestling with just personally, right? And I've been chewing on this. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Brad taught through what does it mean to be an heir? What does it mean to have an inheritance? What does it mean to be adopted into the family of God, right? And this is something that I myself have just been kind of chewing on. Like, what does this look like for me? What does it mean for God to be my dad? And for some of you, you're like, man, I don't know my dad. Or I do know my dad and I don't want anything to do with him. And others are like, yeah, he was around. Wasn't really what I hoped he'd be. And so this idea of a dad just is completely lost. Some of you had the coolest relationships with your dad. You were building forts and going hunting and doing like just fun stuff. And you're like, yeah, man, my dad was legit. So I'm going to read this. This is Romans 8, starting in verse 14. Brad taught out of this, so I'm not going to camp here forever. But for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, right? For those that have said yes to Christ, you've received the Spirit. You are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with the Spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Have you personally grasped the fact that when you say yes to Christ, that you have become a son or a daughter of God? You've been adopted into his family. Right? You weren't given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Right? And fear of what? Right? Fear of God's approval. Fear of God's presence. Fear that God is reading and knowing you. Right? That leads you to avoiding him. If you're scared of God and you have this image of this just brutal guy that's constantly looking for what you're going to do wrong, you're going to avoid him. 
I know for me personally, I don't want to hang out with a judge. I don't want to go camping with a judge. I don't want to go eat wings with the judge. I don't want to throw a ball around with the judge. I don't want to go see Star Wars with the judge. Because the entire time you'd be like, well, that's illegal. (laughs) Somebody's got to pay for that. I don't want to do any of that with the judge, but I want to do that with my dad. I want to go to the movies with my dad. I want to go throw a ball around with my dad. I want to hear what my dad has to say. And I want my dad to hear what I have to say. You've been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. You are his kids. I appreciate that he has banged that gavel down and said not guilty but I don't know if I'm ever going to be buddies with the judge. What's crazy in all of this too, is that on top of just being adopted as sons and daughters, we aren't just adopted as the black sheep of the family. He doesn't adopt us and then hide us. And when he goes to the block party, he's got all of his kids lined out and he's like, yo, check out that one. Yeah, Jesus, he's, he's good. He's awesome. But check out that one too. Look at that guy. Look at that girl. Those are my kids. What's the language say? It says that we become heirs. And hear this, we become co-heirs with Christ. Jesus is your brother. How legit is that? You become a co-heir of God. We're going to settle Back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul caps off this incredible section by calling us to remember who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, right? Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could follow a bunch of rules. He died on the cross so that we could live free. If he came and did what he did, and then we say, you know what, that's not good enough. I need to do this and this and this on top of it. That's kind of a slap in the face. And the things that you're adding after slapping them in the face get you nowhere. For those of you trying to work your way to God, you can't. But God can I'd like to invite the team up as we prepare to respond. And we do this week after week after week. And so if you're sitting here and and you've got something going on, man, you've got a family situation, you've got something that's just eating at you, and we've got people that would love to pray with you. We've got people that would love to hear you, that would love to step into your situation with you. Right? They're going to be standing over here by the prayer room. There's people in the back of the room. If you just want to come up and kneel at the stairs and tell Dad what's going on, do it. If you've got something that's just gnawing at you, it doesn't sit right. You're like, man, I just need peace in this situation. I need wisdom. Dad, tell me what to do here. He wants to hear it. You're his kids. 
If you brought a gift or you brought an offering or a tithe, if you want to put that in the box, we've got four of them all throughout the room. You can bring that forward. Some of you during this last song, you just need to sit in your chair and you need to wrestle with a few things. Man, am I a slave or am I free? When I look at my life, are the things that I'm doing, do I feel obligated because I believe that will make God love me more? Are the things that I'm doing, things that I believe uh, God wants me to do in order to earn my way to heaven, in order to earn my relationship with him, in order to earn anything? Or am I living a free life where he is the king and where what he has done has been sufficient for me? Or do you need to sit in the chair and say, man, I've been viewing you as a judge for too long. I want you to be my dad. Sit and wrestle with that. Talk to him like he's your dad. He loves it. He wants to hear from you. And for the rest of us, we can stand and we can sing. We're singing a song, When Death Was Arrested, right? Singing all about what Jesus did, right? This is why he's such a big deal to us. This is why we love him. This is why we worship him. This is why we praise him. Keep in mind during this entire song, that exchange that takes place between him and you where he's taking all of that guilt and shame and just nastiness, and he's giving you nothing but innocence and blamelessness and righteousness. Let's pray, and we'll respond. My Father, thank you for the truth that we heard today. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul and his dedication to you and to the gospel Thank you that his letter to the Galatians is available for us to read, that it's available for us to learn from. Father, thank you for the work of your son, Jesus. Thank you for this great exchange. Thank you that because of Jesus, we are found not guilty, that we are innocent. And thank you for the freedom that comes in that. And Father, I pray for those that don't know you that they would that they would see their need for Jesus, that they would say yes to Jesus, that they would be able to experience what it is to be your son or your daughter. And I pray for those that do know you, that they would see you as more than just a judge, or that they would see you as their daddy. And because of that, that they would pursue you, that they would rest in you, and that they would find their joy in you. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Let's respond.